Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kind. I want to say hey to you, everybody. This is our first episode of 2021. We are happy to be back with you after our hiatus. And um, yeah, so Gary, how are you feeling Not today? Not too bad. I, I did hit a deer this past weekend. Well, oh. a deer hit me. It was self, self-defense. And talk, uh, <laughs> talk about experience talk design. Talk about experience design. There's actually much we can say about the, the experience design of trying to get your car fixed which uh, that's highs fair. and lows, but more on that later. Today, we have something much more important to talk about than my encounter with a deer and my car. That's a good point. We have, oh, we dear. have oh, oh dear, exactly. We have much more exciting content to talk about than that. That's right. Today, we are super excited to share an extraordinary conversation that Gary had with designer and entrepreneur, Paul Balenciaga, who is the co-creator of the College of Extraordinary Experiences. Yes, you heard that right. The College of Extraordinary Experiences. Now, Paul's personal journey started with a master's degree in recreation while in Salzburg. Blending gamification and experience design, Paul and his advisor created new ground in the space of tourism experiences in the book Gamification in Tourism. And a chance encounter with a Nordic LARPing leader resulted in them exploring how to rent places to create immersive experiences, influenced by the work of Punch Drunk and Meow Wolf. And if you don't know what those two are, Punch Drunk is one of my favorite theater troops, and they do a amazing immersive plays, such as Sleep No More, which is a Victorian retelling of, of Macbeth in a four-story hotel that you walk around for three hours, and all the audience wears masks, and the play happens around you. And it's this incredibly weird and, and um, you know, trippy experience. So anyway, Punch Drunk, an amazing theater company, as well as Meow Wolf, which is a converted bowling alley that is now an interdimensional portal experience in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Also amazing. So the idea with Paul was to take LARPing, mix it with game design, and run a professional conference where those things intersect. You find the College of Extraordinary Experiences. The college is not just there to have extraordinary experiences while attending, like it's some kind of amusement park you visit and then leave. But through these experiences, the experiences you have while taking part in the college, you'll begin to find the extraordinary in everyday life. So you don't go there to find the extraordinary. You go there to find the extraordinary around you. It should be mentioned that, and we talk about this quite a bit, doing so does come with some potential costs and risks as these experiences and the journey you take with others during your time at the College of Extraordinary Experiences can expose old wounds that have not yet healed. But the point is to become transformed, not only professionally, learning what is experience design, what are experiences, but also become transformed personally and hopefully, ideally, spiritually. The college is based on the hero's journey, if you're familiar with the hero's journey. If you're not familiar, just think. Where you come through the abyss to be renewed at the end. So you, a guide helps you move through this journey, this arduous journey, where there are pitfalls and dangers and darkness and loss of hope only to become transformed through renewal coming around to seeing the light one more time. A feature of this transformation through the College of Extraordinary Experiences 
is that you see how everything is extraordinary. If only, and this is a big if, if only you're able to see its extraordinary nature. If only you can see that which is extraordinary all around you. So the goal is to provide participants with a pathway to rediscover through this intense multiple day journey that combines education and LARPing in a Polish castle, which, I mean, you had me at education, then you really had me at LARPing. You throw in a Polish castle, you got me all day long. Game, set, match. Absolutely. The challenge becomes, however, and this is a big challenge we talk about too, especially in a modern society where we all can feel disconnected from creativity and experience. How can we get back in touch with the extraordinary experiences of everyday life? That's ultimately the goal for the model of the College of Extraordinary. It was a wide-ranging, really interesting conversation with Paul, and we hope you enjoy it. Yeah, so Twitch. Twitch is, uh, you know, it's for gamers first. And, you know, originally it was for gamers, people just playing video games and hanging out. But increasingly, there, you know, it's grown much beyond that. And so you have people, you know, just chatting as a category, science and technology in real life, art um, makers and crafts or something like that. And so it's actually become uh, an environment in which people can freely communicate, educate, connect, um, evolve. It's, it's really kind of interesting. It's, it's, it, you know, being an older person, originally I was like, why would anybody go on Twitch just to watch people play video games? But then as with anything, the experience of it becomes much different once you immerse yourself in it and just let yourself become part of it. So it's been pretty cool being able to, you know, without any shackles of classroom requirements or grading and evaluation or assignments, going on to Twitch and delivering educational content with people from all around the world, like literally mm. all around the world and creating a dialogue space where people can just hopefully learn from each other. That's wonderful. There is, a, there is another app that got a lot of hype. Um, it's called Clubhouse. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Yeah, I am, but yeah, it's. I'd like you to tell me about it because I can't get access to it given I'm on an Android phone, and I think only Apple users can get access to it. Mm, I think it's for both platforms. It's just that um, the difference between Twitch and Clubhouse is that Clubhouse started as, and still is, maybe because it's alpha or beta now, as an invite only. Um, and, and users got... You know, you get invited and you get one invitation. Right. Or now you get three invitations. So then you're very, it's very curated in in a sense of like targeted to whoever the other person chooses to invite. And at least for the start of it, it, it made a very interesting crowd of um People, I know I was the first one from Romania and that was already like, wow, we have the first person from Romania. Oh, really? But then, yeah, then because their user base was very small, at the beginning you had most people from, from tech and investors and, and then PhDs and then university crowds. And then now it's, it became the more people you invite, the more diversified the crowd is. But the, at, at least at the beginning there were all of these 
um, superstars and so on. People were very excited to, sh to share the room and so on. So it's, it's sort of like Twitch, but more in exclusive way, but now it's becoming more and more open. Um, but what I like about it is that they train moderators now. So it's, mm. it's also very good in that sense. I, yeah, I tried, I, you're the third person in three days who's mentioned Clubhouse to me. And I went on to the Play Store to try to find it. I was, the, 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 the Clubhouse I found was only like a project, project management soft, you know, program. It wasn't this other thing. So then I was like, well, I guess I can't get access to it. But, it, it, you know, it's, it, I do wonder about um, people's desire to connect, right? Especially, obviously, in the COVID era, trying to find ways of connecting and to form connection. And that's what I've been finding on Twitch is just people wanting to connect. And there's even, you know, mental health support groups on Twitch. Wow, where, pe where people are really opening up about their personal lives and just a lot of positivity and sharing. And it's not what I expected, but only discoverable through allowing myself to enter into it so that I could make these discoveries for myself. Hmm. That is wonderful, isn't it? That you're just in this, how, how can we call it? Audio, is, is it audio video or is it just audio? It's, it's both, right? And so the way it works is you can do the audio. You, you, it's video. I'm on video. And a lot of people connect Discord servers into their Twitch channel so you can have other people come on or you can have people through Zoom. And it, it's a little complicated in the backend technology part of it. But once you figure that out through other programs like Streamlabs OBS or OBS, you can create these really wonderful learning experiences that are really agile in terms of adaptability to whatever emergent conversation is happening in the moment where in a regular classroom environment there's always that pressure of i have to get through the material i have to you know or we're constrained by the physical space of a classroom or the technological space of a zoom meeting this is much more open than any of that and it allows for a lot more creativity in how you engage with folks on the platform mm. Also because you sort of kind of need to design for a, like you would have an open room. So people should find interest as soon as they go in or go out and right. Yeah, I think so. I think, and this goes back to the expect, you know, experiences and expectations, right? I don't expect anybody to even come. I don't expect mm -hmm. them to stay. They're not registered for the class. They're not required to be there. And so I, I, I don't have to feel like I need to check up or resentful if they're not paying attention or, um, you know, annoyed if they leave because, because it's much more, the expectations are much lower. It really does cognitively and emotionally free. At least I've experienced this free me up from even worrying about that stuff. It really is about the fun and enjoyment of education and teaching. Now I've only been doing it for like a little bit over a week. So talk to me in a month, but <laughs> the people who I follow on it, I mean, there really is a community that starts to evolve and emerge from their repeated engagements and familiarity with one another. Hmm. It's the, in, a, in a way at, at the event that we're hosting the college of extraordinary experiences, we have a similar culture to engage. We do have a curriculum, but then outside of that curriculum, because we have wonderful creators coming from all over the globe that want to share, and the audience is limited, we just um, have this in our culture is the law of two feet. So people can 
um, leave, opt out at any time of any activity without feeling any right in person, there might be a bit more of a, wow, I don't want to leave and people might feel bad because I'm leaving, I'm not enjoying a session. But we actually encourage people to leave and we, we, make, we say it's, it's a normal thing. And it's also designing or creating for the audience of one in a way that many people ask, well, can I get a slot from nine to 10 in that room and announce it? And we're saying, well, no, you can create any experience at any time, but don't expect that 50 people will show up and don't expect that people will show up on time. So make it open. And if one person shows, that's your audience and make it special just for that one person. And that creates a powerful experience. It, it again, it sounds very familiar to what I, to what I, you know, not on the grand level of what you created at the College for Experience, Extraordinary Experiences in terms of the, you know, the physical facility. But, you know, today I was talking with one person at the start of the stream. I streamed for three hours and I was just as happy talking to one person as when there were like, you know, seven people there talking, you know, because I'm like, wow, this person in, in all of this, this person chose to sit here and listen to what I was saying when they didn't have to. And that creates this reciprocity of, I really should try to do my best, not only for the art of it, but also for the, this person who's taking their time to be there versus a student who has to be there because they registered or it's required or that they're afraid of, you know, not getting a good grade, right? I mean, the motivation is, it feels to be much different. And I guess it might be the same thing for the College of Extraordinary Experiences. No one's required to be there. They're there because they want to have that experience. Mm, yeah. It's also that, so then have you ever thought of having this podcast on Twitch? Yeah, I have. And some, and there is, by the way, a, a talk and podcast category, a talk show and podcast category. So I have thought about it, actually. And we, you know, we might, Adam and I have talked about it, and it might be a thing to do we, to set up multiple, you know, windows and engage an audience. And maybe once we, you know, build up some, a little bit of audience, we might be able to do that. But I think it's a great idea to do that because to have a live, live question and answer even too. Mm, yeah. That'd be a lot of fun, actually. Baby steps. I've just figured out how to get myself on, <laughs> on Twitch just recently as an old guy who's trying to figure out the young people technology. So what's the, what's the most interesting kind of, what I notice is usually the ideas or the insights come to me while I hear myself talking or hear others talking so what while you're hearing yourself talking on on twitch and also together with the interaction that you had there what's kind of the most interesting thing that popped in your in your mind as an idea or as well it's, it's an interesting question because one of the things that i've been doing is as and i've never done this before and i think and this goes back to what what you all have built when you put yourself in a new and unique environment it stimulates ideas in ways that taking for granted or typical or mundane environments feel like they suppress ideas. So one of the things that I was able to do was open up a Google Drive document. And as we were talking, I might go there and type up what I'm saying and then share it as a PDF with the, you know, on my Discord server. And so one of the things that, you know, we came up with today, because we're talking about propaganda and critical thinking, that was the topic for today. Right. And one of the points that I made 
was the lightness of a lie provides greater freedom of movement than the weight of the truth. Mm. And it was just something that just popped into my head. I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. And then someone else was sharing like, you know, Nietzsche quotes. And so I had a, a professor, a, a psychology professor, friend of mine who was on there adding her insights. And so rather than me lecturing to, it was this collaborative creation of knowledge through this shared experience that we were producing at the same time. And I wasn't just responsible for it. We were all responsible for it. That's, that's wonderful because it, it, I've been working, co-working co on a book on, on the design of transformational experiences for one and a half to two years now. And it's been a lot of work and, you know, maybe, maybe you have experience in writing, co-writing <clears throat> and other members of your audience too. And it's, it's so hard to, to take it to the final because you keep on discovering and discovering. And uh, this week we met and we just said, you know what, what if we change our approach into a work session where we co-create live and then we also um, have a, a colleague who's an artist and then she's co-creating live with us. And then we're just writing a piece, let's say a five page piece. And then we, we publish that. Um, and then we get the feedback and then we publish more essays and more essays. And at one point right. we can put it all together, but being live with someone and, and kind of painting at the same time, then being a lonely painter makes it so much more powerful. So we just experimented with it and, and just like, we just did a small prototype and in just 10 minutes, we created a wonderful two page essay with artwork inside. We just published that and you got like interesting feedback and we didn't publish it necessarily as authors. We just published it anonymous just to see what comes back from that spontaneous creation. And I think that's a very cool way of, of creating. We have a mix of different views focusing on answering a question and then just produce a piece of out outcome. And is that what, I mean, I know we talked about it before. And by the way, a, a good friend of mine, <clears throat> Lauren Waldman, who is known as the learning pirate, I told her I was talking to you and uh, she asked me to, to give you a R or Yar, Yar from the learning pirate. <laughs> so Lauren, Lauren in Canada says Yar. I just want to make oh, sure. Oh, Yar back. Yes. When she listened, I said, yeah, I'm talking to Paul from the College of Extraordinary Experience. She's like, what? I love that. And, you know, I, have you been surprised by the reach that the College of Extraordinary Experiences has had in the, in the time that it is, it's existed? It's, it's incredible, actually, because we are not doing any active marketing or actually we're not doing any marketing at all other than having the website. We do have a Twitter and an, and an Instagram, but we're not actually in a Facebook that I'm posting from very seldom. So we're not doing any active outreach. And I remember when I started it, I was like trying to think of a marketing strategy and so on. And then with time, we just gave up. And I'm surprised that we're, we have this application process. So it's so many different people from so many different angles of expertise and life and it, that applies just wonderful with no marketing. So I just find that in a way 
what I learned is um, Joseph Campbell mentioned this somewhere in an interview or somewhere in one of his books or vast work that secretly everyone's looking for a call to adventure. And I think with the college, we created such a powerful call to adventure that it, it just organically spread everywhere and, and, and people are answering it just because it's so unique. I, I love that quote. And I wonder if there's a correlation between the comfort for many, not for all, but for many of modern life leading to a greater desire for that call of adventure. Because if you're living you know, in a precarious situation that might be, you don't need a call for adventure because every day is an adventure trying to survive. And so as we have surrounded ourselves with whatever comforts we have, you know, people trying to find meaning through that adventure. That's, that's, I think, yeah, that's that's a very interesting way to look at it, right? The two different ways, people that have, let's call it the challenge every day to even survive. And then the ones that have hedonic adaptation to, to such a degree that they can, that enjoyment becomes even hard and numbness starts showing and so on. I think um, to me, the way I look at it from from a theoretical perspective is that we, as a modern culture, maybe Western, Westernized, we have skipped the powerful coming of age ritual, which is that call to adventure, to enter transformation from being a child to becoming an adult. Um, so I think that's that's why we are longing for that call to adventure to mature in a way. And, and it's, you know, the college is based on the hero's journey in the way we design it. Um, and what, what I learned in, by being an immersive experience designer in the past was something that I was completely unaware of. And that is people look at movies and books that you know have the the monomyth structure and they they kind of become addict not addicted but they can enjoy it a lot and they're very attracted to this because it's it's the pattern however it's not an embodied practice i'm looking at the movie i'm i'm reading a book i'm not in it and when we we started creating the immersive experiences where you're able to become a a, a real life character in a book by using live action roleplay, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and be immersed for five days in that experience. Um, and, you know, the College of External Experiences is not live action roleplay. It's it's kind of a mix of many different approaches. We did live action roleplay experiences, five day immersive. Then you're living the hero's journey, and living it is a different experience than um, watching it passively from the comfort of your home. And so the difference, what I've noticed is between immersive, you're living it, but you still have an avatar. You are your person, you are not the character. So you have still a protection layer, but at the college, 
we're using a mix of, of approaches, but then you, ha you don't have any avatar. So that kind of rite of passage hero's journey is deeply embodied. Um, and it's very interesting um, kind of realization that I had is that it, it, in a way it becomes a rite of passage. Take, Not for everyone, but... Right. Taking that metaphor or that, that framework of a rite of passage, I mean, usually... I'm remembering back from my one or two anthro classes I had as a PhD student, a tribe or a group, it, the rite of passage is defined. You're going from this thing to this thing through going through this event, right? But here, the, the, the thing you're becoming isn't defined in the same way as it is in a, you know, a tribal group or something like that. And so how does that play itself out when people are going through a thing, they're transforming through the process, but what they're transforming into is unknown. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm becoming an, a this. I know at the end of this process, I'll be a this. At the end of this process, I'll be changed. But what that means is I can't know ahead of time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good question. Um, so the College of Extraordinary Experiences is an experience about experience design. So it is in a way known in the fact that you live an, an experience, you have an experience that is in a way you see the backstage of how it is designed and we're transparent about this. You understand it. And then towards the end, you need to have at least new insights, the least, uh, and the most a different perspective on what experience design is. Um, and the unknown to me comes from, I, it's, it's hard to, to know what the outcome is based on, on the history, because you know, if you're in a tribe, then the tribe has the legacy and the multi-generations, they each knows the history of the other. They know themselves intimately, but you know, sort of like in Twitch, when you bring completely diverse humans together with diverse backgrounds, diverse perspective, diverse past events, that creates the unknown as opposed to a tribe where everyone kind of knows each other. Um, so the unknown comes from not knowing the perspective of each person and, and, and when, when different perspectives clash or meet in, in an experiential way, then you don't know what's going to come out. But um, what I've found out is a very interesting term. Usually what happens at the college is an awe-inducing experience for most, not for everyone, depending on their openness to experience. Um, and that awe-inducing experience in any case, the, no matter the background, if you experience awe, it, it always creates the same thing. And that is a experiencing vastness. And then in the post phase, you need to make sense of that. Mm. So for everyone that would experience this vastness through any opening that might happen during the event, um, they will need to make sense of it. And right, the, the college is not like going to war. If you go to war, you, you would experience vastness from a traumatic perspective that you're so 
helpless and vulnerable and open and, and so on and, and depends on what you might be. But then you would still need to have the same thing post-experience, which is make sense of that experience. So it is an intense experience and then you end up with post-traumatic stress. In sense of positive designed or co-created or experienced events, you have post-ecstatic stress, mm. which is a thing. And I was like completely surprised to find out that term. So the unknown is how are you going to deal with that? And that's where I have the unknown. And that's why we're always having the interviews with the participants saying, well, there is a chance that, that you might have post-ecstatic stress. And in the same case as the post-traumatic stress, it needs to be dealt with in a way that you need to have space to facilitate the meaning-making process. And that needs to be supported by meaningful relationships, positive emotions, and then you craft a new story, a new pers pers perspective and perception. Post-static stress, is that a, a word I've heard before? And so like, what does, what does that entail compared to like post-traumatic stress? It's, the stress comes from not being able to understand what an experience means. Um, and I don't think it's, it's any, I mean, of course there is a difference. One is based in trauma, which, which might end up in a lot of suffering and, and things that you, you, you don't want to go through or look at. And the other one is based in highly positive emotion that you're unable to experience again, or you might, you know, and you want, might want to go back there and you don't understand why, why isn't every day like the college? Right. You know, why isn't this like that? So from that questioning, if you, if you spend enough time to understand, then, then you will move from not being able to understand why to start making sense of it. And when you start making sense of it, you understand the Marcel Proust. <laughs> and, and, you know, he says, you know, the true voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Right. And then you understand that everything is extraordinary. And this is, you know, this is what we, we write about in our landing packages that it's all about perspective and the extraordinary isn't the ordinary. Actually, there is no such thing as that dichotomy, that, that dualism um, of looking at things. I really like that. I was just doing a, a session for a company on ethnography and innovation, right? And of course I used the Proust um, quote, but I also used a quote from um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think it was, who said something to the effect of, you know, the ability to see the miraculous in the mundane. And it's this, this sense of, you know, for this company's purposes, I was like, you know, a lot of companies try to think new and big in terms of where they're going to get innovation from, rather than looking at the everyday and the mundane that exists within their worlds already, but yet the processes they have in place or the systems they have in place or the relationships they have in place you know, inhibit from emerging. Mm -hmm. 
it sounds similar to, if, if I might, it sounds similar to, you know, what you just described there, which is, and what the kind of sociology that I do and looking for the everyday, right? The every, the miraculous and the everyday orderliness of life. Exactly. And, and that, that change in perspective is triggered by either a traumatic or an ecstatic. But if, if we move away from traumatic or ecstatic, we can just call it an intense experience. Right. <laughs> right? Because it's the intensity that we're talking about. Um, and if you have an intense experience, um, in, in spiritual term, you have a zenith experience or a nadir experience, which is a, a term that I was not unaware of. And, and, and I'm not even know if I'm pronouncing it correct. It's N-A-D-I-R, nadir. Yeah. Yeah, nadir or zenith or nadir. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Right. So and the, the definition of it is a, a negatively felt connection experience. And that could be the encounter with death, right? Is that yeah. traumatic? Definitely is it's scary. But it can change perspective, right? It can also be if you see it in, in cancer patients. Um, right. So... Let's look at Abraham Maslow. Um, are you familiar with his last two years of life? And it's, it's very, it's fascinating. No, no, I'm not. He, he had a, a heart attack. So he had a near-death experience. And then he started talking about, if you look at his last public talk, it's just amazing. Like how he's talking and it's completely different. There's like one phrase where he's saying, you know, before this, I was always preparing for these events and I was stressing out and, and I always wanted to make a good image. And now I just show up and flow. Um, so after this near-death experience, he started writing about, before, right, most of his life was the, the peak experience and the hierarchy of needs and how we're all striving to have this. And then he wrote about the plateau experience. He never and finished conceptualizing like most of his work is is very ambiguous and all over the place it's beautiful and very very deep but this plateau he opened a new box that that i found very useful for me when understanding what the college is doing and you know the things that we're talking about the unknown and not knowing how the the post event is going to unfold this metaphor is beautiful so you have a peak experience, which is the college in this case, or it can be any other, um, you know, it can be Burning Man, it can right. be a Vipassana, it can be um, near-death experience, it can be deep love, whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, what happens after you climb the peak of a mountain? Well, you go in the valley. And I call it the valley of fear of missing out on the right. next peak. So most, I think, the, if we talk about the experience economy, I think this is what the experience economy is and will continue to create if, it's, if it doesn't shift towards a different look at experiences. Immersive events, they offer this intense, powerful experience, and then people go down to their daily life that is not the experience. And the, the thing is that people need to be aware that this is a highly engineered set and setting for you to be able to experience that peak without doing any work on yourself. Right. And the peak is simply presence 
of the moment. So when when you know when you're when you're in an engineered flow state without doing any work, of course it's great, and of course you want to go back there. You know that's that's why um, everyone wants to do all sorts of um, drug-induced experiences, for example. It's, it gives a flow, right? So then you go back home, and then you're in the valley of fear of missing out. Now, what, what Maslow talks about is, well, you need to have a... Yes, you can show people a glimpse of peak experience if they never had it. Um, and then you need to engineer a scaffolding so that they don't fall down in the valley, but they fall on some sort of a scaffolding. Now, as an event organizer, I cannot engineer that scaffolding for the people. They have to make sure they will set up their own scaffolding in their own lives. And uh, these are different for different people, but they're always based in practices. So a meditative practice, a... Uh, art reflection practice, a, a mindfulness practice, a deep connection with a friend practice and talking, um, whatever it is, walk in nature, sit in nature, whatever, doesn't matter. But if there is no practice there, you will fall in the valley. If there is a practice and you have it daily or fixed very often times, then after you have a peak experience, you will fall down on a plateau. And then right. it's very easy to go to peak, plateau, peak, plateau, peak, plateau, no valley. Right. So mm -hmm. he was, for example, you might go to a supermarket and all of a sudden, I don't know, you might be looking at something. And then, I don't know, you might feel overwhelmed with love. And you might have this amazing experience. And then the cashier is like, sir or madam, <laughs> you have to pay. So then you would not have an Adir experience, which is like, oh my God, what just happened? You would just say, yeah, sure, here's like $5. And then you move on. Right. And you would not be addicted to that state because that's another trap where you always want to be in peak. And then because you always want to be in peak, you can never be in peak because you, instead of being in peak or allowing the peak to happen, you're always wanting to be there, which is a different action. <laughs> that's, that's really fascinating. I, we talked a little bit about <clears throat> being in you know, different kinds of groups. I talked about a group I attend weekly. You talked about a group you attend monthly. One of the things that when I first started attending this group that was hard for me for a variety of personal reasons to really connect with was this idea of gratitude. And people would talk about it's really important every day to, you know, give gratitude, keep a gratitude journal, express gratitude, identify things you're grateful for. And I was just thinking, that's just a crock. Right. I don't want to hear about gratitude because I'm coming from a, a damaged or a, a problematic place or whatever. But then as I, you know, was able to listen, I was able to hear what that was really about. It wasn't gratitude to pretend that nothing's wrong. It was gratitude to connect with the miraculousness of life itself, right? That there are these things that exist. Like this morning, I was sitting having coffee like at 5 a.m. or 5.30, and it, the house was quiet. I was reading a book. I was drinking coffee, and I had this moment of gratitude, which was like, oh, my goodness. This is like mirac I said, miraculous that all of this is happening for me right now. And it was a nice moment, and then I was able to kind of you know, go out of that moment. Is that, I, I, that's what I hear you saying, and, and you know, it, it was hard for me to kind of get to that point. And I think of a lot of people because 
all the baggage, all the issues, all the thoughts, all the clutter that we preoccupy ourselves with that don't allow us to connect with those kinds of moments. Oh, that's wonderful that you mentioned that because one of the things that Maslow wanted to do after stumbling or having this, oh, I don't know how we can call it, insight, deep insight, is that he wanted to give a course in miracles or yeah. and basically every single thing is that. Um, I, I, it's, it's funny you say that. One of the things we talk about in sociology is there's very few sociology courses on every, you know, the sociology of everything's okay. Most sociology courses <laughs> are social problems, you know, juvenile delinquency, criminal justice, deviant behavior, you know, drugs in society. I mean, if you look at the sociology offerings, it's, it's just pretty depressing. And you really don't, you know, it's like racism. I mean, you name it, right? We study social problems. That's how people tend to get their PhDs or whatnot or get things published. Rarely is there anything of, you know what, that was all right. And I think that's in part the kind of sociology that I do doesn't study social problems. It studies the production of social order. <laughs> you know, how people together work together to create in concert some recognizable activity. Hmm. Yeah, I think if we're focusing on the fragmentation, we continue to further that fragmentation in a way, right? That's where we put our, our attention on, on the. But then if, if we accept, if we see the fragmentation, that's where the healing can happen. It's like, well, there is a problem, whatever it is, like addiction, right? Dr. Gabor Mate is a wonderful, wonderful person talking about the addiction. Actually, the addiction helps you understand. It's the first step in in understanding your fragmentation and, and getting back to healing it. Um, I was listening recently to a podcast by Tim Ferriss. He was interviewing some um, wonderful psychologists. Um, I don't remember his name. And he was talking about, well, if there he's saying, well, let's say if there would be no addiction to drugs or alcohol, well, the next step would be suicide. So, hmm. right? you need to acknowledge what there is and then see how you can work with that as a teacher. What is the addiction trying to say? Right. Right. Um, Dr. Gabor Mata says, you know, don't ask why the addiction and ask why the pain. Right. Right. And in recovery kind of circles, people might say, you know, if someone's expressing a thought or a, a, a not helpful habit, the question might be, well, well, what are you getting out of that? <laughs> What's that doing for you? <laughs> You know, why are you continuously engaging in this thing by choice that you know isn't productive for you? It must be doing some things. So let's talk about that thing that it's doing so that we can get at stopping that behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and using the behavior as a teacher rather than as this thing that should not manifest because the manifestation is the teacher is like showing you what's wrong. Um, you know, it's the, it's where you start pulling the thread. Yeah. And that's, that's a scary prospect, right? I mean, for, you know, cause you don't know like at what point you're going to ravel and, and then trying to reconstruct it once all the yarn is on the floor. Right. And that, and that, that's where I appreciate this idea of, you know, the scaffolding of some kind so that, it, you know, it's not a slip into, you know, nothingness or meaninglessness. It's like, you know, it's not just, okay, we've unraveled you. Good luck. 
<laughs> let us know how it works out, but it's how can we transform that process to this plateau state that you're talking about? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the more I'm, I'm researching, I'm always beginning to wonder if someone that has peak plateau in order could just be called a mature adult. Yeah. And, and, and I'm talking about this by looking at, at rites of passage, liminal space. And, you know, we talked about tribes is they had that in check in a way. And Mircea Eliade, who's a great author, um, talks about the sacred and the profane view. Um, and saying like, you know, after you go for a rite of passage, you change, you know, through psychological death right Right. and therefore you know why negative things like a burnout or other things might lead you to the same sacred view everyday miracles and you change from having a profane view to having a sacred view where everything is sacred and here i'm i'm in ecuador right now working on a project um with a chef and reflecting a little bit on what what does a restaurant mean right it, it comes from from the french word restaurer which means to restore and and wondering if 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 restaurants are actually restoring or they're doing quite the opposite and and mm. and the way we treat food through industrialization we have created um food became profane if we treat food as sacred, understanding, you know, the connection with the soil, the connection with the seasons, the connection with the ecosystem, the connection with the biodiversity, you know, right. the, the, the whole cycle, we're not fragmented from it. We're, we're at the heart of it. We are it, you know, we are right. part of the cycle. Then if we see food as sacred, that's already a, a pathway to transformation of, you know, the, all of the crises that we're, we're living at. Now, now food just became this cosmetic drug. We even call it comfort food. Obesity is on all time high. And, and it's just because it became a coping mechanism, another addictive behavior of, you know, why the pain and then people are looking at establishing what Martin Seligman would call cosmetic drug approaches where you're just, you know, well, well, let's just change the menu or let's just do this and that instead of, well, why are people eating too much? You know, philosopher Alanda Bhutan says, it's not because we're hungry. It's because we're lacking understanding, love, compassion, but when there's so little mature adults left in the world, <laughs> where can you get that mature yeah. emotional regulation from? Yeah, it reminds me of the TV show. We might have talked about this before when we chatted. The TV show Hoarders, um, which I've seen a bunch. And it's where people just cannot stop accumulating stuff. And as well, they can't get rid of anything. So their homes might be piled really high with trash and just be in this kind of chaotic state. And invariably, it's because there's some emotional damage or issue in which these objects have taken either t- or taking the place of something that's gone 
or you know filling a place that people are afraid of. Exactly. It's not about it's not about the stuff. It's about what the stuff is doing. It's about the damage that they've experienced in their lives through some trauma that the stuff is becomes a a shield against. Uh, you're back. I'm back. So it becomes like a guard against a shield against the things that people are afraid of facing, of of dealing with. And so they, they surround themselves with stuff, often to the point of completely diminishing their quality of life. Exactly. Or, you know, we can see it in COVID. Hoarding of toilet paper. That's my, you know, that's a wonderful, sad example of what's going on, truly. Um, and I remember I've been hired by a global um, mall um, company. They're building shopping centers and malls across the globe. And I've been hired to help them shift and transition from being a, let's call it like a, a center of shopping center, right? to becoming an experience center, right? Because we're saying, well, people now want experiences. Goods are not enough, services are not enough. And, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that, which it took me a while to get. I was trained in designing experiences as, a, as this thing. And then I was realizing, well, I was just designing co- better, higher dose coping mechanisms. Right. Because, you know, a brand is not enough. Eating in a normal restaurant is not enough. Now you, you need a, an extra dose of engagement and to get there because you're already saturated with that. It already became hedonic adaptation, like we're saying. So there was a, a study that was done uh, for this uh, European capital where we choose to do a prototype of, of, of this uh, transition. And they did a study by using... Um, active listening, Mm. which is a wonderful, wonderful qualitative approach to getting to the truth. Right. Um, So they they send researchers to people's homes and the researchers just ask a couple of questions and then they listen for hours and hours on end. Now, this is something that was not normal for the average respondent who most probably never had someone holding space for them to be heard. Right. So, of course, what we got as free result, I call it, you know, the meeting where, where senior management started crying because we, were, we did shed some tears and it was like very painful and, and, and like really you can feel the, the tension of sadness in, in the room when the, the results were being presented with examples. So three main insights came to us as designers to create the transition. One is... I feel like a number in a big machine. That's the kind of the main insight. The second one is I feel like I'm trapped in a hamster wheel and I don't know how to get out. And the third one is society is sick and I feel like I'm on my own to cure it. And to give you an example, right, there there were also examples and that's where kind of the really sad stuff happened is like there was this respondent who like you said about hoarders who told the story of her grandmother passing away they went to visit the house to you know to uh and you know to their surprise when they looked in the closet it was full with clothes bought from this 
shopping center where we're designing experience never worn, all with labels on. Hmm. So then this person, you know, was torn apart to find out that her grandmother was actually using shopping as a, as a coping mechanism for her disconnection and loneliness to the family. Right. Right. And I'm like, all right, now design, you know, design the right. transition. And we're like, well, we need a, a radical shift in how we think. And, and that's why I really like philosopher Charles Eisenstein, who writes wonderful essays. And one of the things that he said, you know, because we talked about rite of passage, this is a global rite of passage that we find ourselves in. And he said, the only thing that he's afraid of is that this crisis will not last long enough for us to change. Hmm. And I agree because I still feel like yeah, getting back to the new normal and I'm getting invitations to speak at all sorts of conferences about innovation in tourism and what needs, you know, how, how can we create, there's either two direction and the, the main current is still the old current, which is how can we make things more attractive, more engaging? You know, how can we still give this higher dose to people to, to, to be this, this, magnetic pool of attention for hedonism um, and escapism from that hamster wheel, right? But then people go back to the same right. blockage. So we're just, yeah, doing this vicious circle. So we're very interesting times and many things require change, especially as we're living, you know, COVID is just the tip of the iceberg, you know. Biodiversity crisis is huge. Right. Right. It's it is a really compelling thought about. I can't wait till we can get back to normal. And I would ask, do you remember what that meant? I mean, obviously, kids going to back to school, and I mean, there's and people not dying would be a, would be a good thing to change. But at the same time, I don't want to sit in traffic all the time. I don't want to spend my time, you know, feeling like I have to keep up for fear of missing out. I mean, you know, there, there is this, there's this one comedian that I follow in his podcast, Mark Marin. He's, you know, he's saying, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not worried about missing out because no one else is doing anything either. I mean, it's this not entirely true, but it's this idea that there is a lesson to be learned here that if we're willing to listen to it and not just worry about getting back to quote unquote normal, whatever that means. Exactly. And that's, you know, the listening will happen if this lasts long enough, because sort of like in a burnout, you get burned out and then you're, you're incapable of healing until you listen to, to that inner thing that came to you. It's like, Hey, like think about the things that you don't want to think about. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, you know, if your doctor tells you, you got to slow down, you got to slow down, you got to slow down, and then you have a heart attack, and either you slow down or you die. <laughs> At some point, the system, you know, will, will not be able to support the stress being put on it. And either you can change that stress ahead of time to preserve or transform the system, or you can have the system fail, which could be your biological system or your ecosystem and then deal with what that brings. Exactly. I mean, ultimately, I think that your body, 
gives you signals. Um, and that's why I love the concept of embodiment as healing. You know, that's why you have all of the martial arts, Taoist arts, yoga, all of these like heal, bring you to equilibrium through body because that's where most of the trauma is stored, right? That's why it's very interesting of talking about psychosomatic and how right. you have even collective manifestation, right? If, if, we, if we feel about, you know, if we can remember the beginning of COVID crisis, there was this, you can feel it in your body. Right. Um, so if you pay attention to the body, that's already a very good place to start to, you know, when people have a panic attack. Well, what do you feel in your body? Well, I don't have air. I feel pressure in my chest or in my belly. Well, let's start with that, you know. Is it because of you, someone telling you something, or is it something else? And then if you're able to to go inside and say it's something else, then you start. And that's why I love this this new trend that goes in travel and tourism is that, you know, the, the new travel and tourism is not in the external environment is a completely inner journey. And how can we transition as an industry to become good at that, to understand it, right? It's like for Thomas Cook to be able to open up the tourism, he had to go himself first on that voyage. Right. And it's a voyage, right? Because you don't, like you said, it's unexpected destination. It's not a journey. It's it's not a travel. It's a voyage. It's, or it could even be an odyssey in the end. Right. Uh, some, some of our new um, travel and tourism are uh, vaccine caravans, people trying to go to states <laughs> where there might be some vaccine available. I was talking with a colleague and he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm driving my camper down to North Carolina. Why? Because I was able to get a vaccine appointment. I'm like, Okay. And he's of the age group where he can do that. I'm like, so that, that's another travel and tourism opportunity is a vaccination tourism, apparently, is a thing now in the United States. Mm. Yeah. If only this vaccination could cure the disease, right? Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I know. And it's, I, I, I have not thought about it in this way, but it is interesting that one of the early hallmarks of getting COVID is a loss of primary elements of experience is your taste and your smell. And, 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 and I've been reading some articles on how that has resulted in people developing depression, even if they have mild COVID symptoms, it's not like they're on ventilators. It's not like they're in emergency rooms or ICUs. They're generally fine, but because they've lost their test sense of taste and smell, they've gone into depression because of how much of our experience is connected to those two things. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, is, is it because we're, we're, I'm just, I'm just thinking if, if that is just because taste and smell is a coping mechanism, because I mean, you might even not have it and still be able to feel holistically connected. I think with the, I was talking to a friend of mine who had COVID and he lost, he's better now, but he lost his sense of taste and smell. And he said, I was drinking coffee and it just tasted like hot water. He, I, I could, he couldn't enjoy food. People report, I can't enjoy food. And so much of our memories are, you know, through our olfactory, right? And, or, you know, how we relate to a, a, a situation is through how it smells. And yeah. so once those things are gone, there was a, 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 I don't know if you remember the band In Excess. No. 
Okay. So Michael Hutchinson, I can't remember his last name. Anyway, um, he is famous band back in the 80s, 90s. He got into a fight when he was in Copenhagen with a cab driver. The cab driver hit him. He fell, hit his head, suffered um, brain injury that was permanent. Part of what he lost was this permanently was a sense of taste and smell. And in a documentary about him, he speaks, you know, and he's not, he later he committed suicide, but there was a discussion about how that was an element in this depression and this change of personality. There are other factors, but people have reported when they can't smell and they can't taste this depression because they feel like they can no longer really experience. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I know. Yeah, and and you know beyond just the self isolation or the group isolation, if you're with family, is this loss of other experiential inputs that we typically rely on, and as you said, are amplified to create this, um, you know, this idea of a cosmetic drug. That's why companies have flavor enhancers and smell enhancers Yay. and things like that to create that cosmetic drug where the taste is artificial, artificial sweetener to get you hooked to it rather than just experiencing the thing itself. Yeah. Hmm. I and know. There comes the question is like, what, what if, how would a transformed society look like? Um, that's, that's a question that I'm, if, if, if some of your listeners are familiar with the Pine and Gilmore progression of economic value, mm -hmm. he goes from economy based on commodities, economy based on goods, economy based on services, economy based on experiences and our, with inner travel and, you know, playing with senses and understanding how they work and why are they linked to depression or what is the, the reason or how can you get back from that or, you know, getting deeper in that, call it inner understanding of our human nature or of our nature <laughs> dot. Um, it's like, if we're able to do that, right. If we're all master Zen monks, Right. How would that society look like? And I was talking with someone about it and he gave me the answer of, which I find very interesting. And I'm just putting here as a thought experiment of um, objective art. And he talks about it, objective art. And here where I'm in Ecuador, there is 1,700 items of pre-Columbian kind of civilizations that were found, they have no author on them. And they're just amazing. They just look at this ceramic piece of a shaman meditating. And that's what I see in as objective art in a way that you get to a place where, for example, Buddhism, in, not, not Buddhism necessarily, but in, in the translator of the Dalai Lama was asked, what is Tibet? what is the word for creative in Tibetan language? 
And he said there, there is no such word. The closest word that comes to creative that they have in Tibetan language is natural. So to me, it's like, this is like, you get to this transformation, become natural. What means to be natural? Well, it means not to have tension in your body, no matter what happens in the environment. You can just allow it to come and go, you know, the typical meditative practice. So then if we all reach collectively that level, then what we will do, then I think we're able to tap into this Let's call it, Maslow talked about primary creativity and secondary creativity. Secondary creativity is, is a place of, of designing from being aware of what other people think and playing with all sorts of already existing concepts. Primary creativity is being able to tap into that deeper place. And I think if you're not natural, and most the most creative people on earth would say, it's not me who was singing the song. The song was sung through me. I am right. the vessel. So if we're getting in that space, then we will just end up creating objective art, which is there is no need to write our name on the piece of art. And the art itself is going to be in a way transcendental that will become that scaffolding that will remind us of, that we'll, we will have peaks everywhere in, in our daily life well i mean nature nature as it is is that is objective art right but you know in our constructed cities and so on then we need more of that it reminds me of uh, i was watching a documentary about the musical group the Bee Gees, and one of the brothers said we didn't write any of those songs they just came through us they just i mean they just came out exactly and, you know, and uh, I was uh, listening to a podcast with an actor named Mandy Patankin. He said the same thing. He's like, it just moves through me and out of me when it's happening the way it should happen. Mm -hmm. And so much of uh, modern life, you know, industrial, post-industrial or industrial, post-industrial life is not that. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, and I'm, I was just thinking while, while you, you brought in the industrial way of doing things or post-industrial way of doing things, you know, besides the internal blockages, which we all do have to a certain extent, there is the, the I wanted to use the F word here, I'm not going to use it, but there is the corporate blockage. Right. There is the organizational blockage that creates processes. It creates unnecessary structures, unnecessary hierarchies, unnecessary, yes, you need to get this approval and that approval. And so it's like, it's the opposite to a studio, to a creative studio where you can be that thing. So if you, you, if you would put a test, Nikola Tesla in, in, I don't know, a German company, he would be miserable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I think it's such a, uh, such a crucial point. And when I was talking with this company about innovation, well, I wasn't talking with them. I was presenting a webinar and I hope they were listening. I have no idea whether they were or not because I could not see them. But what I did say <laughs> was, was talking about, you know, forget, you know, look in, look inward to yourselves. You want to create innovation. Don't just look at your customers, look at yourselves. Yes. Understand yourselves and your talents and your abilities and identify the things that inhibit their coming out. <laughs> wow, that's wonderful. Can you say that again? Identify their... 
identify the 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 abilities, right? The innate abilities and assets that you have within your organization, and then identify the blockages and the barriers that inhibit them from coming out. Mm. Remove those things, create these work, create these workplace communities in which people's work and knowledge is prized. Then you're going to be in a much better position to create that innovation. Hmm. I want to just what just you said. You know, this this go look look inside. Then then from there it it will all solve itself. It just made me think of a Jungian perspective in a way that your subconscious material, which can be a blockage, and you know if it's you, you're unaware of it and you're enacting it over and over again, becomes fate. Yeah. And depending on who who is in the steering group, they will just attract always over and over the same situation because there we have this innate, I don't know, the mind or whatever it is, you know, it can be expressed best. Joseph Campbell would said, it is best expressed or you can best understand it by feeling it. The second best thing that you can do is um, art, <laughs> understand it through art. And the third best thing is talk about it. So we're mm. doing the third best thing here. Right. But if, if, if you are, yeah, just manifesting the same, this in, so again, the, there is this innate, it, let's put it, it, it has an innate desire and energy and flow to heal yourself. Now, that's why it will always put you, the organization, but let's start with the person, in the same situation over and over again. But the situation like a dream, it will always have different people, different setting, different set, but it will always be the same trigger. Right. So if, if that is not acknowledged, so if you don't go within, but then you continue going without, then you, you would have the same problem, bigger scale. Right. <laughs> so, that, so the journey starts from within. It's, it's never, it was never any other way. It's, no. it's right. Marcel Proust has it right. Yeah, I think so. Well, Paul, I think it's a good place to end. I want to thank you so much for chatting about your work, which is fascinating and voluminous. Voluminous? I think it might be a word. I can't tell. Close enough and really appreciate taking the time to chat. Thank you so much. It was a, it was a pleasure to, to freestyle. Freeform, no structure, right? I, I love it. We want to thank Paul Bulinsea of the College of Extraordinary Experiences for talking to us about his own transformational journey. And this has been a transformational journey, checking this out. Now, we were talking while he was in Ecuador, working on a biodiversity landscape transformation project, which means the work is not done. And that's amazingly impressive. If you want to find out more about the college, please see our show notes for the details, as well as how you can follow Paul. You can also communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That's experiencexdesign. As always, we love hearing from all of you with your what you liked about the show, what you learned from the show, what ideas you have for future shows. Whatever feedback you have, we're more than willing to listen. So make sure you send it our way. 
If you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, head over to our website at experiencexdesign.com. Stay on top of all the EXD news. You can also join our uh, show page at LinkedIn as well. And feel free to reach out to either Adam or myself to connect with us on LinkedIn and our other social media outlet. So with that, see you next week, everybody. Hope you have a good week. Ciao.